I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, brought to you by FilmDivider.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me as always to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Seb Patrick and James Hunt. This week we'll be skipping the news entirely, because I mean, I just went through the news to you two days ago. What more do you want? Um, And we'll be jumping straight into our discussion of Joss Whedon's 2015 film, Avengers Age of Ultron. Uh, We'll begin with a fairly brief spoiler-free segment if you just want to hear our kind of immediate non-specific reactions. Uh, But then we'll launch into our usual spoiler-filled discussion. But don't worry, we will let you know when that is about to happen. But before any of that, I am, as usual, going to ask Seven James to explain a comics concept that, as a movie fan, I just don't understand. And as a movie fan who just saw this character in a movie a few days ago... I still don't understand. What are Vision's powers and who is Vision and what is his history in the comics, guys? First of all, is it the Vision or is it Vision? It's the Vision. It's the Isn't Vision. It, James? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's the Vision. I was I was writing about him only a few weeks ago. Yeah, so I I'd really go know. with the Vision. The thing that surprised me was I was writing about him and then I was grumbling on Twitter about having to write about the vision because nobody ever has ever, ever liked the vision. And I got about six or seven people all replying to me going, I love the vision. So apparently there are people out there who like him. Well, you did. I do remember a couple of episodes back. You both said to me that no one really, no one really cared about the vision. That, yeah, that was just me projecting my own opinion onto the world, but apparently he's quite popular with readers of 70s Avengers comics. So I guess that would make sense. So what can he do? He can change his density, so he's either intangible or diamond hard. Oh, you are my density. Quite. Sorry, b- back to the future, go. So, <laughs> so his, his background, part of it is that he is the android body of the original Human Torch. The one that I read about in the Oh, yeah, Marvel's of course you read about him. In the, I was going to say, I don't know if yeah, you're aware yeah, of him, but one. you read about him yeah. in the Marvel's Project, yeah. Um, okay, that's interesting. And his mind has something to do with Ultron? Or is he completely disconnected from Ultron? Uh, Ultron built him, possibly using his own brain patterns as a base. And the, is the, the, the human torch's body is synthetic to begin with, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's, he's a robot, basically. But he's a robot who develops emotions. One of the most famous panels in Marvel Comics history is a close-up of the vision with a tear streaming down his face and the caption, even an android can cry. <laughs> Which I think is 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 he is he weeping with joy at being accepted in, into the Avengers and being accepted I as not a villain or something? I believe that is what is happening. Yeah. yeah, 
Maybe he's just dreamt of electric sheep. <laughs> oh yes, but yeah. So so but so he can change his density. But what what does that mean? Like he can fly. He's got like a he's got a thing in his head. You know he can fly anyway because you know androids can fly apparently. Okay. But uh, what he normally does is sort of goes intangible to fly through walls and do reconnaissance and stuff. And when he's fighting, he can like put his hand in people's chests and solidify it to hurt them. And you know also he flies up, turns into diamond, and like falls down on them. Like t- turns diamond hard, not into diamond. But and why don't you like him? That's the final part of this. Why don't on the page? Why don't you guys like him? I think I've just always thought of him as a bit boring, but to be fair, I've maybe not read enough comics with him in, but I've just, I think that thing of an earnest android learning to do good, because I think he showed up at a very similar time to Red Tornado, a DC Comics character who has almost exactly the same life story, and I just find that a little bit, a bit hackneyed, really. (laughs) I think hackneyed is the word. For me, it's more sort of, he's always just been hanging around the Avengers as a a sort of B-list character, like he was never a solo star he was always just a supporting character in the avengers and you know the avengers are supposed to be the big hitters so i don't have a lot of time for the supporting players in that team i I would kind of liken him to the martian manhunter at dc because what they always say in in the dc universe like in the pages of the comics themselves is oh it's not really the justice league if the martian manhunter isn't in it and yet the martian manhunter himself i mean he's been in some quite good comics and he was good in justice league international but he's not intrinsically interesting himself and it's like like his sole purpose really is to be the kind of rock of the Justice League. And the vision's kind of the same. You know, the vision is really is defined by being a member of the Avengers and not much else. Right. Okay. Well, I, I guess that's the uh that's the point at which we remove ourselves from the normal f- format of the podcast. Uh we skip the news now and we go straight into our spoilerless discussion of Avengers Age of Ultron. So this is this is going to be fairly brief. If uh, if you haven't seen the film and you don't want to find out about it, kind of you can turn off after this segment and maybe come back after you've seen it. But we'll do we'll do a brief spoiler-free segment before we start picking apart the specifics of it. But guys, first question, I mean, what do you think? Did it did it meet your expectations? Was it up to the previous Avengers film? This is the film I expected the first Avengers film to be. It was kind of messy, was pulling in a lot of different directions. It had too many characters to really sort of get into any of them. You know, it was all right. And I just think this is what I expected of the first film. And we got a sort of five star, basically note perfect blockbuster. And, you know, it's hard not to be disappointed by a follow up that's kind of sort of half baked. Are you on the same page, Seb? I think it's probably a ma- maybe a matter of expectations, but I mean, I, I mean, I was never expecting it to to live up to the original, and I don't think I was even really expecting to get the same joy out of it that I did with Guardians of the Galaxy or Iron Man Three. I enjoyed it a lot while watching it. I enjoyed it a lot, and I'm sure we're going to sit here now and we'll be able to pick apart things that are wrong with it. And I won't be able to argue with most of the criticisms. I've read James's review, and while it, you know we'll get to it, I do disagree with some specifics, but in general, I think the points James makes are entirely valid they're just not as much of a problem for me because while I was watching it I just enjoyed it so much and so it's not a great flawless film but as a big piece of massive action cinema spectacle 
I think it's great. And I think there are ways, particularly on the action and the set piece front, that it does beat the original. Like In general, it's not as good a film as the original, but there are a few elements of it that I think do improve on the original. Seb, we, we mentioned last week we reviewed 1978 Superman. You said that was your favourite superhero movie ever. I think the further away we get from it, the more sure I am that The Avengers was my favourite superhero movie. I came out of that film just filled with such joy and like the the kind of impetus to discover more about that world that has led to doing stuff like this podcast. So, <laughs> but at the same time, I kind of did think, well, Joss Whedon doing Avengers again, it could be just as good. I don't see any reason why it couldn't. And while I don't think it is, the more I think about it, the more I think about the, the intricacies of it, I think that it does have flaws. I kind of came out thinking it was really enjoyable in almost every moment. Like, you watch the film and you're having, uh, personally, I was having a whale of a time the whole way through yeah. and came out thinking, but uh, is it structurally a bit of a mess? And I think I've kind of moved away from thinking it's a mess now and more that Joss Whedon is juggling a lot of balls all the time the movie kind of builds like it's almost like Whedon's playing chess he's thinking two moves ahead all the time and one action sequence will inform something that's about to happen over here and something that's about to happen over there and then this thing will happen and that'll have repercussions on all these different areas and I think ultimately he's got a few a few too many things that he's trying to do and it leads to a couple of his ideas and themes being a little half-baked but man, I really enjoyed it in the moment. I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm I'm probably gonna see it again this weekend. I, I just wanna make it clear, like I'm like I have a lot of negative things to say about the film, but they're mainly because I have such high standards based on the first one, which I thought was, you know, pretty much perfect. I, you know, I did enjoy it while I was watching it. It's just that I enjoyed it in spite of what it was rather than for what it was, if you see what I mean. I think there's I think a really strong comparison is one that you made when I described to you what I thought about it and as I say I think we we have a similar perspective on on it being messy structurally but slightly different levels of whether we can still come out of it thinking highly of it it's almost identical to um, Days of Future Past in that sense. I really loved Days of Future Past, even though I would I would sat there watching it, enjoying it in the moment, and then after every moment thinking, oh, that doesn't really make sense or that doesn't really work. Age of Ultron's kind of exactly the same, and I think you had similar problems with Days of Future Past, whereas I, what, what Joe said about just the more you come away from it, kind of the less the problems actually seem to matter. I came out of Days of Future Past thinking, yeah, pretty good, three star, maybe close to four star. And since then, I've kind of thought of it more warmly. And I think I'm going to do the same with this. See, yeah, I'm definitely the opposite, where I enjoyed it at the time, and then the more I think about it, the more I think, well, you know, that didn't really go anywhere, and that didn't work, and that scene just didn't have a place in the film and they could have done this and it would have been better. And, you know, the more I think about it, the more I think it could have been better than it was. Well, I mean, this is this is kind of all in relation to our expectations and what you know what we were hoping for from the movie and what, what we ultimately got out of it. But do you think do you think Joss Whedon delivered on what he was attempting to do? Do you think do you think Joss Whedon will look back at this movie and go, oh, "I got that wrong" or "I got that wrong"? Or do you think he achieved exactly what he wanted to? <laughs> if achieve? you if you read interviews with him from the last twenty four hours, he does he just not wants to go seem to bed, doesn't he? Particularly <laughs> favourable towards it. I I found it 
fascinating hearing him talk about it in the last couple of days. I get a real sense that he has got a, he he knows that too much was flung into this film. He mentioned at one point in one of the interviews, um, oh, you know, I really hope that people don't see this film as one step in a continuing narrative, but that it is perfectly self-contained and it doesn't have too much references to future stuff. And it's like, dude, that is exactly the overriding thought. That is exactly what this film is. I I, I disagree with that massively. Massively. Well, okay. well, we'll come that. to that. But <laughs> I think one of the things I think you might look at this film and wonder about is whether, like, the central story is supposed to be Tony Stark creates Ultron, Ultron goes awry, and the Avengers sort of pull it back. And I think just that story doesn't exist in the film. Like the themes of it just aren't in most of the most of the scenes. And it's like that's that's the film that was promised, like from the first teaser of the face mask getting punched up or whatever. And it just that's not the film that we ended up with. What we got was a lot of references to future films that are coming out um i think we're going to disagree more and more as we get through this podcast because (laughs) i just that that wasn't the movie i saw the one thing i found was interesting i mean i do really like this movie but i'm a a big mcu fan and i was kind of i was trying to work out where it was gonna go in my you know rankings of these movies and you know so what this is the 11th and i I don't think i want to like say which are my favourites outside of the, the Avengers is the top because that would maybe p- potentially ruin Spoiler quite a few podcasts. future podcasts. <laughs> but for me personally, I, I think this ranks like a, about dead in the middle, you know, kind of like six. Uh, it's it's clearly better than, you know, slight missteps like Thor The Dark World or um, Iron Man 2, but it's not, you know, it's it's not up there with the very best that Marvel's done. But having said that, I, I yeah, I just, I, I did really enjoy it. And, you know, for it to be the kind of like, for me, the like, average of the Marvel films is still, you know, well above the average blockbuster. Well, that's that. That is a point that's worth making. Is that it's like in in the greater scheme of superhero movies, this is in the upper echelons, definitely. I would agree with you, bang on. I would put it exactly sixth as well. I have a pretty solid, firm top five, and I'm pretty sure all three of us have the same <laughs> top five in a slightly nope, different order. No, we don't order. because uh, don't we? Okay. I, Iron Man is not in my top five. So. <laughs> uh, okay, but me and James have the same top five in a different order, and you've got four yeah. of them, I think. And yeah. I and I yeah, I, I would agree with just putting this just ahead of. Uh, a couple that I really like, but that I think this is better than, and certainly ahead of the weaker ones. And yeah, like, you know, we are talking about this as a slight disappointment compared to the best of the MCU, but the best of the MCU is pretty much as good as superhero cinema gets. It's as good as blockbuster cinema gets, like, yeah. to be fair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this is, you know, compared to the majority of Hollywood action blockbusters, this is excellent. As is our way on Cinematic Universe, we agree, but we disagree, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, uh, I, I think that's probably the point that we'll have to draw our spoiler-free segment to a close, because there's just so many specifics we want to dig into. And that's kind of, you know, the, the way that Cinematic Universe functions. We, we dig into the minutiae. So, as I said, if you haven't seen the film and you don't want anything more tune back in when you've seen the movie and and dig into this and obviously we know there's some of you in other countries who maybe haven't had the chance to watch the movie yet we are lucky in the uk that uh the film is out uh, a week earlier than the us for example and if you don't get the chance to see the film before next wednesday well we are still going to have a podcast coming out next wednesday which excitingly is going to have a an interview with the star of the property we're talking about. You'll be able to find out what that is right at the end of this podcast. So to those of you that are leaving now, we say goodbye. Uh, but to everyone else, 
we'll play the Avengers Age of Ultron trailer now to give the others a chance to leave, and then we'll come back with lots of Age of Ultron spoilery goodness. It's the end. The end of the path I started us on. Nothing lasts forever. Okay, so everyone who's still with us should either have already seen Age of Ultron or just doesn't care and wants to be spoiled. Um, and we are going to spoil away. But we'll start right at the beginning with the opening sequence because I, I think it's probably fair to say that this is an aspect of the film that we're all going to be in agreement of. The pre-title action sequence is pretty fucking rad, right guys? It's it's a, like a continuation of the style of the Battle of New York from the end of the That Avengers. is exactly what the feeling i got from it is like yeah. we are picking up exactly where we left off with like these seven characters operating in perfect unison it's the great kind of like flowing camera shots it's, it's some of my favorite me- moments at the end of the avengers where the camera kind of pans through the city and it goes with one character and then it stops following that character because another character has entered the frame and you're now with that character well james do you want to make your standard comment about that scene (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah my standard comment about that scene is that it's the only part of any superhero film that adequately represents what reading a comic is like and that shot from the trailer with them going through the air in slow motion that is such a show-off moment and yet it's so good i may need to see it again but to make a pretty bold claim i think that's the best action sequence in any of these films i think it tops the battle of new york scene it was the one sequence of the film as well that i thought was just it it seemed like it had been made with 3d in mind it looked i'm not generally a huge fan of 3d but that sequence looked incredible in 3d yeah it was it's just it is it is a phenomenal opening and what surprised me about the film is that is that that pace is kind of maintained for a lot of it but but nothing else in the film feels like that sequence through the action bits and you know the bits where it slows down for you know uh, iron man to actually enter the building and you know when hawkeye is shot or whatever or just in the dialogue yeah the the action is great but i felt like we got so much teased or established about what these characters were going to be in the movie you know like the natasha bruce relationship was established right there at the start got the the hawkeye injury moment where like all of the everyone kind of stops because they're concerned about their friend and you've got tony barging in head first not thinking of the consequences you've got him saying yeah yeah a secret door yes <laughs> you know cap saying the giving the language line yeah. which is a joke that whedon has fun with pretty much right up until the last scene of the movie i thought we got like a load of really nice little character beats in that sequence as well that's the thing i liked most about that action sequence it, like obviously it looked amazing and it was choreographed beautifully or whatever but the thing something i think was incredible 
increasingly missing from the action sequences as the film went on was that there was actual storytelling in there. For me, the best action sequences are always the ones that tell you about the characters in some way. And the less sort of individual they become, the sort of more I'm just not interested. You know, I'm not really there for spectacle. I want character. I mean, we'll get to each of the different sequences, but I think Whedon, I certainly think when you get to the final sequence, yes, there is not a lot of telling you individual stuff about each of the characters, but that's partially because most of those characters have reached the end of their arc. But I think it spends time telling you about the dynamics of the team. That is an action sequence that tells you what the Avengers as a team are about, whereas the one at the start gives you lots of individual little bits. And I think there's I think there's character moments definitely in the Hulkbuster sequence, which I think I think it is in there. Whether it's as successful or as affecting is is another question. Let's talk then about maybe the the bigger themes of the movie as a whole. And I think certainly the theme it establishes, we can discuss whether it properly gets deep into this as the film progresses but the idea of the Avengers as this kind of world police and you get the idea that Iron Man sees the Avengers as kind of like a means to an end that they are there to protect the world but wouldn't it be great if they didn't have to be there anymore hence why he wants to create a like android army and then when he wants to create artificial intelligence whereas Captain America this is more like this job is a calling for him he's a soldier he needs to be doing this he doesn't see it as something that he's ever going to walk away from. But also then it's the stuff that that kind of Ultron says out loud when he comes into the story that this is a team who they want to preserve the status quo, they don't want anything to change and are they going too far in trying to protect the world and, and why, you know, why do they think it's down to them anyway? Like, personally, I think the idea of superheroes as sort of protectors of the status quo is always interesting when it comes up. Superheroes have this weird thing where you can, you know, it's possible to read them as sort of extreme left-wing or extreme right-wing, depending on your political leanings. Sometimes they're in, in it for the social justice, and other times they're in it for, you know, smacking down criminals. You know, the idea of a film that explores that in the context of, basically, modern politics, which is that there are terrorists out there and we have to go and smash them to bits before they get to us. Yeah, there's there's a really great line in the film isn't there where we get these two flashpoints with Tony the first one is that he creates Ultron because he wants to create this artificial intelligence to do the job that they're doing now and the second one is when he kind of filled with guilt from making the huge mistake he did with Ultron goes but wait what if I do it right this time and (laughs) creates Vision using Jarvis plus the body that has been generated by Ultron already. But there's the line where Cap- where Captain America says to him, anything terrible that ever happens comes from someone taking action to try and prevent a war. And it seems like it's, I mean, American cinema does this a lot now, but it's like a critique of American po- foreign mm. policy. Kind of a country that is increasingly becoming less relevant as these global superpowers emerge elsewhere, but who are desperate through militaristic means to protect the status quo. I think that's a fair reading of what Whedon is saying in the film whether it sort of informs the story you know like because those those are moments but when you dive into the actual plot there's a lot about how you know they've created this thing that's out of control and they've done it because they're scared it's not having the results they wanted I think what's interesting is that Whedon has chosen to tell that story but do it in a very interior method he hasn't gone what does the world think of the Avengers he's gone what what if we try and explore it from from within what does being in this team to me 
mean to each of the characters and how are they dealing with their position in it so like do Hulk and Widow even want to be there how long can Iron Man keep being Iron Man for Thor doesn't he have more pressing issues in his own world and I, I kind of feel that Whedon at least understands that the most interesting dynamics of this movie are always going to be the dynamics within the team and if he can tell a wider story within that then great and I, and I think he I think he goes some way to doing it it, it certainly keeps flashing up but I, I think I think the thing is though that a, a lot of the the plot is is based around kind of the Avengers reacting to the world and the world reacting to them and I I, I think a place that the, a way in which the film falls down is in not showing us the world's reaction because you get the whole thing with you know after the Hulk incident you get a brief moment where they're on the plane and like Maria Hill says oh you know the world basically everyone's really pissed off at you and you're gonna have to go into hiding for a bit and they go into hiding for about five minutes and then the next minute they're they're out in the Quinjet again and you know there's no sense of how the world has reacted and there's no sense of how people would react upon seeing the Avengers again after what's happened with the Hulk and I know they slightly go into you know Banner realizing that he needs to kind of retreat from the world and stuff and that was quite interesting to me because it's all it sort of it brought up a plot element from Miller's Ultimates that I didn't really think that was a direction that they'd go down but I just I, you know we never got anything shown from outside of the Avengers perspective when it comes to the world reacting to them so so what I'm saying is I think it's more interesting that they took that approach but what it's you're maybe saying more interesting that it... they took that approach but I think the problem is that the plot really relied on the world's reaction but we didn't get to see it i think the problem is that it informed the story but we weren't being shown the full picture because a lot of what they do in the second half of the film relates to the fact that the hulk thing has happened and the ultron thing has happened and like ultron what is the scale of ultron's assault on the world we get vague hints of him being everywhere in the internet and him being in different places around the world but we never see him do anything and we don't see him kind of attacking ordinary people and stuff like that it's just weird that we don't see the effects of it a bit more we only see the effect if the avengers happen to be there at the same time as it's going on should we talk about ultron as a villain i think the, the most interesting thing to begin with there would to, to still like carry on talking about the themes of the movie before actually how successful he is as a bad guy but so this is a character well this is a creation of tony stark and when he arrives it like it's really you know james spader who knows how to <laughs> deliver hammy dialogue like an old pro he's kind of delivering lines that sound like they could have come out of Tony Stark's mouth but almost like the old weapons manufacturer Tony Stark uh, so he's kind of like a twisted like fairground mirrors kind of version of Tony Stark and I was kind of disappointed that it didn't it seemed in the first half hour that this film was going to be Tony Stark's movie and the relationship between him and Ultron would be key and they kind of have a fight before we get to the Hulkbuster sequence and after that I, I felt like it didn't really dive into that as deep as possible this is the thing about Ultron is that as a as a villain Ultron's theme is like hubris out of control and in the comics Ultron is created by Hank Pym and it emerges that Hank Pym used his own brain patterns to create Ultron and that one of the reasons he's so personally affected by Ultron is because he recognised it as this sort of version of him without a conscience or a soul and sort of you know pure ambition and the ability to realise it and he's like you know that is me if I was evil. Which is kind of there to an extent at the start of Age of Ultron, right? Yeah, at the start of Age of Ultron, but this is why I I feel like that should have been the story of this film and it wasn't. And I think if you're going to 
use Ultron, that's that's what you need to concentrate on. And one of the things that particularly bothered me about the end of the film is when you see, like, that final moment between Vision and Ultron is really nice. It's this kind of moment of father and son, you know, and, like, the new destroying the old. But I feel like that should have been Tony Stark's moment to reject Ultron and say, like, we're trying something different. Instead, they're doing it with the CGI (laughs) robo-Jesus. Well, I I feel like as soon as they introduce Vision to the story, it stops being Tony and Ultron, and it becomes Vision and Ultron. That's the dynamic that the film wants to play up more, but it's weird because... Because it doesn't exist for the first two-thirds of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm, my feeling about this film is that they should have taken Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver out of it and created Vision much earlier. And Vision should have been the one going on the journey of, I'm helping Ultron, I don't like this, I'm turning against Ultron. Then that final scene would have paid off. Because Ultron exists because of the hubris of Tony Stark, and then Vision exists because of the hubris of Ultron. Yeah, and exactly. Down. Mm. And that still happens, but it's not built up as much. Like, that mm. mirrors the comic story in that Ultron's creation does to him what he did to his creator. It's sort of I just don't understand why they left introducing Vision so late in the film and instead have two characters who just have nothing to do with the with the themes of the plot running around in, in at the start. Having said that, Ultron in his moments is pretty great, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah definitely. Definitely. <laughs> my, I, my favourite bit is when uh, the, he's in the plane and Hulk jumps on the plane and you just hear him go, oh, for God's sake. It's like, it's, it's such a human moment from... It's a lovely bit of direction, like not showing him. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Have it, having Hulk disappear off panel and keeping the camera pointing out the back of the plane, <laughs> having his voice and then having him be thrown out. That is a that is a beautiful bit of composition. That That's something that is funny because of how it's composed visually the moment that i really liked is when ultron is monologuing and then suddenly uh, it gets smashed to pieces and another better ultron comes from behind and just keeps on talking <laughs> but i i love those kind of moments and, and he does kind of have them at the party as well where he's picking up like broken fragments yeah. of the other ones and he's like and, and when he's saying like don't you get it you're killing me here but i'm all i'm already there doing that thing uh and i, I thought he was great in his in his scene with claw i thought I just, I just I I really liked the moments. I just wished that I wished that there was more time to do the character beats with Tony and Ultron and Vision and Ultron because I think you could have paid off both of those plots with a little bit more time developed to actually moments where they encountered each other. Joss Whedon said when he assembled the first cut of the film it was three hours long and I really like part of me even though I think this film ended up being slightly too long I feel like the three hour version would have really done into those relationships and I kind of want to see that. Yeah, I can't help but agree. There, there is a couple of threads in this film that you're like, oh man, I really I really want more of that. Um, or I would at least like to see what that looked like when it made sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so Thor disappears to a magical cave at one point. <laughs> we should mention this Thor, Thor disappears to a magical cave with Stellan Skarsgård which it's nice to have Selvig back but in what exists in the film there's not really any need for him to be there and we know from the trailers that there's this mysterious girl who is in the cave who doesn't make the final cut of the movie and Thor kind of he disappears midway through the movie goes and investigates this thing and then comes back and he goes Infinity Stones are bad and you're like what what how did <laughs> What were you doing there? And it's and it's you kind of feel like almost Whedon would have liked to have cut it entirely, but the plot wouldn't have made sense for where Thor was unless he'd uh, unless he'd showed. Yeah, I mean the the point of the pool is to allow him to revisit his vision, isn't it? Uh, Scarlet Witch gives him. Yeah, but I wasn't sure what was going on in that vision. Yeah, well, quite. Should we talk about 
the visions because it also gives us a good chance to talk about the twins. So we got Pietro and Wanda Maximov who are introduced. They are from a country called, uh, is it Sokovia? Sokovia, yeah. Sokovia. So from this fictional country of Sokovia, they're twins. And as children, there was some bombing in their country. They were trapped. They thought they were going to be killed. And an unexploded bomb that said Stark Industries on the side, they thought was going to kill them for like three days on end, which kind of made them mentally strong and meant that when Hydra and Baron von Strucker experimented on them with Loki's scepter, that they were the only ones who were able to like survive and gain special powers. So Quicksilver is really fast, as you'll know if you've watched Days of Future Past. And... (laughs) And Scarlet Witch has... She she has some form of telekinesis and maybe limited telepathy, maybe. Yeah. Uh, James, you you were firmly of the opinion that they didn't belong in this story. Well, the thing is, like, you... In describing them, you've basically summarised their entire character arc for the whole film. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, that's not true. Well, what you're missing were the words, and then they turn good at the end. They realise that maybe protecting the status quo is better than some things that can happen. There is a lot of, you know, lip service paid to the fact that humans, you know, are essentially doomed, and that we're, you know, it's it's a species and a world that can't last forever, and that there is such a minor stage of evolution especially when you look at these you know gods that and gods and monsters that are protecting them but that the, there's a kind of beauty to that and that that you know evolution is fine but why rush it and i think that the the, the twins in that realization of what ultron is going to do they kind of go well we know which side we have to be on we might not like the people whose the side that is but sometimes that's the hard decision to make i think that that's a very generous reading of two characters who basically have you know almost no dialogue between them and are essentially there just to sort of be punching bags for the avengers and then to give a little texture to the to the final action sequence like i don't disagree with the way you've portrayed them in that you know analysis but at the same time when i was watching the film i was just like who are these guys why do we care what are they doing here? My other argument would be that in that first action sequence, which was like the Battle of New York reprise, where you get all of these, you know, these great kind of swooping shots and moments doing the killer stuff that Whedon did at the end. And then when you introduce Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, it gives you at least something different to play with in the action, some different kind of visuals, some kind of like slower moments. And Scarlet Witch in particular, when you've got these very strong heroes, you know, physically strong and a man in an iron suit, that getting into their heads is the best way to mess with them. And I mean, that's what Loki tries to do in the first film. We don't understand that the best way to counter the Avengers is to is to mess with them uh, psychologically. And that's, that's certainly in the plot and in the action that's the function that Scarlet Witch serves. No, I mean, I just, I, I think, I think the problem is the fact that, I mean, I, I like them in the execution, and I think the performances are, are quite. Uh, I think the performances are good. I mean, you know, Aaron Johnson when he was first cast, you were like, well, he'll probably work as Quicksilver because he's irritating and cocky, and that's pretty much exactly what is what he was. I thought he had a little bit of heart as well, though. Yeah, but they're just they're not well defined enough. It's like I really like the idea of them, and I think a lot of what could be done with them thematically is interesting, like the 
you know, the, the idea of them be existing because they were, you know, they were created to combat the Avengers and they have a specific personal reason for hating Tony Stark. I like that it gets across that something that you had with Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver in their early days in the comics was this really kind of arrogant, it's us versus the rest of the world, you know, me and my sister kind of attitude. And you get that because of what happened to them and, and the way that they are. All of that stuff is done nicely, but when they're out there using their powers, like, you just have Quicksilver kind of running around a bit, and it's just, you know, it's generally not as stylish, obviously, as it was in Days of Future Past. And with Scarlet Witch, what are her powers? She, every so often <laughs> she conjures up some kind of red beams or kind of, you know, blocks a passageway or, or does this, that, or the other, but it's like, but she can do that as well as the, the mind-probing thing and the visions, and, and, you know, yeah, the big question, really, are her visions visions of the future or because she obviously can predict the future in some sense because we see things that the characters don't know like Thor doesn't know about the gems until he's shown them in the vision so why is that the case it was something that it was it it was a little bit of a problem to me so the the first one she has with Robert you know with Tony Stark he sees all of the Avengers dead and who knows that could be something that actually does happen over the course of Infinity War, or you know, at various stages leading up to that. But that struck me as more metaphorical because that was that was Tony picturing his specific scenario where he'd gone through the wormhole. Like that was him drawing something from his mind. I know? agree. But then there is like a little flash of Vision's eyes at the end of the sequence, and I think there might have been in some of the other sequences as well. And I can't remember. I'd be really interested to watch them a little bit more closely. But like Widow's vision is pretty much a flashback in which she acknowledges that everything she sees is. true. Thor's is kind of a weird kind of like Valhalla-esque it's like a trippy dance sequence which isn't (laughs) it definitely isn't the future definitely isn't something that actually happened and Caps is like a flashback to an event that never happened it's kind of like a dream so yeah I was never quite sure what they were supposed to be and also how they were serving the film uh, on a wider sense other than to go, they're being messed up a little bit. Well, that's what it was, and it was quite a neat way of doing that, and it was quite a neat way of getting some extra cameos in. I'm baffled there was no Loki. So, yeah, I wasn't sure what to make of those, and I'm not sure whether that's just me being thick and not properly... I think the point the point of the visions was to make them like doubt their place in the Avengers because like they start yeah, off and they're yeah. all in unison and then they all have their individual visions and then they're screwed up and they've forgotten how to be the team and you know it means Tony's running off and he's trying to make the Avengers obsolete and Black Widow saying actually I don't want to be in this team anymore and Thor's saying oh I've got better things to worry about so yeah so that's the plot function but you know on the pure technical level of what is her power I can't answer that question yeah it's just it's so it's kind of telekinesis maybe but it's so loosely because it's telekinesis but she seems to be able to create force fieldy type things as well and you don't even get a line of dialogue you do you do get a he's far she's weird that's it Oh yeah, that's it. You get that basically. <laughs> but I like, I like. Do you know what? I like that. Here is a superpowered character. Look, you're eleven films into this universe. Accept it. You just spent a film with a fucking walking tree and a talking raccoon. This girl can do magic. Deal with it. Um, and I did. I did. She's weird. Is a better description of Scarlet Witch's powers than she has ever had in the comics. She has hex powers. <laughs> I was going to say. Do you what think probability altering that, that she makes it? 
Yeah. Does it mean that like Ultron, if you know, he's, if he's if he crosses the path of a black cat, he's going to have bad luck for the rest of the day? Is that is that what it means? <laughs> like it's it's meaningless. Having said that, I you know I I really like Dalit Witch as a character, and I'm 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 fully on board with seeing more of her going forward. Someone I am. Uh, not going to be seeing more of going forward is Quicksilver. So, <laughs> just like if you compare him to the Quicksilver of Days of Future Past, that Days of Future Past character was someone who went down really, really well with loads of loads of people. But honestly, if you give me the choice between these two versions, it, you know, you put them in any superhero film and go, we're going to add Quicksilver to superhero film. Which one do you want? I say, can you give me the Aaron Johnson one who hasn't got like universe breaking level powers that just take him everywhere? with you because he can solve every problem and he is more than just smarm and isn't this a cool scene he has some character and I was sad when he died I didn't feel like I needed to see him in more films but I thought you know he served a function in this film and I think his function was from the word go a link to Scarlet Witch to bring her into this universe and someone who we can kill because we know Joss Whedon likes to kill. And do you find it interesting the way that kind of the entire film was kind of going to you, guys, you know we're going to kill Hawkeye. We're we're, going to kill Hawkeye. They spend so much time going, like, making you... It's like this is the the sort of glimpse of Joss Whedon as you love him. Like, knowing how to (laughs) use cliches and genre conventions to his advantage in storytelling. When Hawkeye kneels down in the middle of the street to protect the child and to accept his death, it's even before that. It's God, as soon as he sees as soon as he child. goes back for the kid. As yeah. soon as he sees that child and goes back, you're like, oh, that's how Hawkeye's going to die. That's just that is you, you know you completely buy into that. It's, at that it's moment. perfect subversion of expectations from Joss Whedon, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think and that, that what, the fact that at that moment you realised, oh, the only relationship they have bothered to establish in the film for Quicksilver is the one with Hawkeye at almost yeah. every point. There's, I, I'd love to see just like a five-minute supercut of th- those two on screen together. One of my favourite moments in the film is the bit where he's, you know, no one would know, and then he's walking yeah. off going to himself, oh, whatever happened to that Quicksilver guy? Yeah, I really liked him. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's the thing, I mean, and that is one of the most... I mean, I suppose it's probably something that we were going to come on to, but it's one of the most impressive things that this does is that, that I would have cared mm. if they'd killed Hawkeye. If Hawkeye had <laughs> died in the first Avengers film, I wouldn't have given a shit. The MVP in this movie is Hawkeye and not just because Joss Whedon has written the character well but he has he's the heart and the soul of this movie he's the glue that keeps the Avengers team together the movie like literally acknowledges that but also Jeremy Renner is really funny in a in a way that it kind of if you watch some of his earlier stuff before he got shoved into bland franchise roles which it looked for a while that Hawkeye was you, you kind of know Jeremy Renner is capable of that well, it's like I, I remember seeing American Hustle just after Aven- Avengers. Well, not just after, but you know, it's not yeah. long after Avengers. American Hustle, and just and I hadn't really seen Jeremy Renner in anything else aside from Avengers. And I was like, wow, this guy has got personality and charisma, mm. and he's he is basically the only likable character in American Hustle as well. <laughs> and I remember watching that, thinking, oh, so that's that's why he's Hawkeye because he can do this. And then in this, finally, you get that Jeremy Renner and that Hawkeye. It does feel a bit like. Joss Whedon was going, well, we didn't really have space for you in the first one, so we're going to give you the most complete arc in this one. Oh yeah, it's definitely a response to that. And it's something uh, that the film does in general, isn't it? it? When it when it actually boils down to it, Thor and Captain America are the kind of characters who in this film carry a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to the plot, and they get some really great individual like gags and character moments. Mm. 
But in terms of character arcs and development and the characters who the who Joss Whedon really delves deeper into, it is the characters that don't get their own individual films. So Black Widow, Hulk, Hawkeye, they they get all the killer moments. And that's and you, I mean, what you've hit on there is 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 a good reason why that should be the case, which is that they don't have their own films. There is something that slightly disappointed me about particularly Cap's role in this. It's a, it's a reasonable sacrifice to make because gets that stuff in the other films. It doesn't mean that it's not disappointing that you don't get uh, as many nice cap moments and Thor's kind of the same you know Thor in this film I mean he does get some really funny moments but I mean he's practically a background character for most of it with Thor Joss Whedon between the two Avengers films seems to be like I I was talking to uh, one of my colleagues and he was saying like you'd almost love to see Joss Whedon direct a Thor movie because he knows how to handle the individual moments for Thor so well. He gets he gets brilliant laughs out of him and seems to get how, you know, this character is a big old lug, but he's also, like, quite funny. But he doesn't seem to know what to do with him within the context of the Avengers. And like like we said, his subplot is garbage. He gets great <laughs> moments, but his, his plot function... Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Is minimal. I just wish the film had done what the first Avengers did, which was that it, it found a small arc for everyone. Like, if the more I wa- every time I watch Avengers, I sort of pick up something that, you know, makes me realize that Joss Whedon had a story in mind for every character. And obviously, we've only seen this film once, so it might happen again. I, but I, I think just, it will. I don't feel like most of them like tony stark's arc in particular just you know he's he's the guy you want to see in an avengers film and yet he it sort of starts and then it stops and then he's basically a background character in the climax i think we we kind of agree on that so let's let's talk about hawkeye there's this wonderful you're starting to feel within the first half hour that oh hawkeye is getting more moments and oh hawkeye is being uh getting a little bit more focus and he's a little bit cooler like i said in that first sequence when he get injured he gets injured and i think when he gets injured in the first sequence you're like well all i know of hawkeye is yeah 
<laughs> I, I I don't care, but the characters seem to. And then there is the the great moment in the first fight with Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, where everyone is getting mind controlled, and yeah. he just he just. <laughs> attaches this arrow to Scarlet Witch's forehead and goes, nope, uh, done the whole mind control thing, don't want any more of that, thank you. It's and- the fact that he says what the audience is thinking, because you're thinking, we, we don't need to see Hawkeye getting mind controlled again, yeah. and if that happens again, that's going to be really boring. And the fact that he says what the audience thinks. And, is, and he does yeah. it, he does it, he gives the line back to Quicksilver with the, uh, oh, you didn't see that coming? Saying it back to him, which is, a, again, a really fun moment. And then we go back to the Barton house where Linda Cardellini is waiting there for him as Laura Barton his wife and he's got these kids and clearly Natasha knows the whole family and you know that he says that it was all set up by Nick Fury and the conversations that they that that Clint and Laura Barton have in the farmhouse about you know why does Hawkeye need to be there around these gods why does why does this guy who can shoot a bow and arrow need to be there lovely little touches like him having a uh, darts board in his kitchen and, uh, <laughs> and an archery board in his in his uh, barn but you really do get a sense of oh my this this guy is the heart and soul of this team because everyone else is either this big superhero and or there's Natasha who is kind of she is she's really damaged and he's he's our guy Hawkeye is our avenger he's the average guy who's got a bit of a skill and he's making it work and he goes no I'm what you know I'm not worried about the team I'm not worried about me and the team I'm worried what the team would be without me I, I thought all of those all of those scenes were great and and generally I think kind of the, the smaller quieter moments in the film were some of its best ones yeah I I sort of wanted more of those like especially the party as well where they're all sort of having fun picking yes. up Thor's hammer yeah like that's a great scene and you just like you're like why can't the whole film be them just hanging out basically and especially the way they pay it off later as well. Like, yeah. it, it does lead into something, that sort of joking around with Thor's hammer scene. It's like, it's a real... Yeah. The setup is as fun as the rev- as the payoff. And and the payoff ends up being a significant plot point mm-hmm. as well, because it, it's the moment where you're, okay, the vision isn't going to turn bad. Yeah, and you, and you know that because of something that was established in a joke an hour and a half earlier. Yeah. Well, it's funny that so we, we get the cap language line in the first scene and the hammer scene at the party... And I'm sure that those jokes are both running jokes that are, they never seem tired, you never seem like you've heard them too many times, it's just they get brought back up at just the right moment. So Thor's hammer, just after you think you've had the the amazing moment when Vision finally lifts it and you go, well, I guess he's worthy, Um, (laughs) that moment is incredible and Chris Hemsworth plays it incredibly. But then even to right at the end of the film where you think, okay, well, that's done with, we've had that joke paid off. (laughs) And then you've got Cap and Iron Man ribbing him about the fact that he picked it up and goes, what happens if we put it in a lift? Is the lift worthy? (laughs) (laughs) It's and, uh, and the film is peppered with those moments. You know, forget the structural problems or whether it's a mess. This is a Joss Whedon film that has those moments all the way through. You know, they they are, as you say, they're proper Whedon moments and they make you laugh and you you know, you want to talk about them and quote them and I just I wish the rest of the film had lived up to that standard. I just wanted very very quickly just a couple of things on the, the scene when they go to Clint's house. The yes. two things that struck me um, with the reveal of the family. First of all, I genuinely thought, because I had no inkling that 
uh, Laura Barton was going to be a character in this, that when he went back to the safe house, that when he said, hi, honey, I'm home, that it was going to be Fury. So I then <laughs> found it quite funny that Fury showed up a few minutes later. Because I thought when he was talking on the phone uh, and he Fury. said, oh, yeah. girlfriend or whatever, I didn't think it then... But as soon as he said we're going to a safe house, I was like, oh, so he's been talking to Fury throughout. And I genuinely thought that. So that was a nice bit of misdirection, <laughs> I thought. The other thing is there are going to be so many people on the internet annoyed that any notion of a romantic relationship between Clint and Natasha in the past or the present is off the table now. You know, that, that she's almost basically like a sister to him. Because I know that. there are a lot of people who place a lot of stock in that relationship. And I prefer it as it is in the film. I, I really like their deep friendship. Yeah, the but, relationship's almost um, stronger for it isn't it? Yeah, but I think there are a lot of people who are invested in the possibility of them as a couple who are going to be unhappy. <laughs> so you talk about the romantic relationships. I thought that was something the film handled well, generally, with Clint and Laura. Even the small moments with Thor and uh, Tony, you know, kind of having the uh, whose girlfriend is better competition. That was a really, a really <laughs> sweet scene. Pepper is much better, obviously. <laughs> oh, obviously. Um, but then, like, I mean, and we have to talk about this, the Hulk-Widow relationship. I thought those two actors both sold the hell out of that relationship. And it made complete sense to me, especially going back to the scenes that those two characters shared in The Avengers, that those two characters would be drawn to each other. Um, and I thought that was it was one of the strands that was played almost perfectly, note perfectly, all the way through the film. I think this is going to be one of our big divergent points because I agree with you, but I don't think James does. I think in the world of the movie, it makes total sense that Natasha specifically would be drawn to sort of, you know, she was scared of the Hulk and she didn't like that. And so now she's owned that and made herself fall in love with him. The comics purist in me is livid that they would go there with these characters specifically because the Hulk has one love in his life and that is Liv Tyler. My response to that, James, would be like, frankly, who cares? Like, it's... This we're eleven films into a franchise where one relationship on screen didn't work, and one that has presented itself through. It's like when you're watching a TV show. Me and Seb have had this conversation about Flash. Like yeah. Barry and Iris just don't work, and that might be important in the comics, but it doesn't have to be important in your TV show if <laughs> the actors you've cast don't have chemistry, or there is another character there who makes much more sense as a partner for that character. And frankly. In the Avengers, I don't think there are two characters who make more sense as a couple. You know, we've seen Black Widow paired with Iron Man in Iron Man 2. We've seen her paired with Captain America in Captain America the Winter Soldier. We saw her paired with Hawkeye throughout the Avengers. And this one, Whedon, correctly identified in my opinion, is something that worked perfectly. And that character, to give the kind of the lullaby to Hulk any time he needed to go back to Bruce Banner form, I thought it was really sweet and it was kind Although, of a perfectly Joss Whedon story that he kind of had to abandon her at the end. It's interesting to note, though, that all of those previous examples you mentioned, and I think it says a lot about the character of Black Widow as established by these films and about Scarlett Johansson as an actress, that she has really good chemistry and relationships with all of those characters, just in different ways. Like, I love the dynamic between her and Steve in Winter Soldier. It's one of the best things about mm -hmm. the film. Yeah, definitely. They have a matey, mildly flirty relationship, but no actual romantic interest. It works really well, you know, and her interest in his love life and stuff like that. That said, I do agree with you that of all of them, this is the one that suddenly comes along and feels like the one that works as a romantic pairing. And I love that it's grown organically. And that's why, yeah, I, I, I agree with you and I disagree with James in terms of <laughs> comics purists. Because obviously, this was obviously never any kind of intent from the beginning. And it probably wasn't even the intent when they were making the first Avengers film. It's just something that they've looked at as the film 
films have gone on, mm. realise that it makes sense and run with it. And I think that's great. I really like that, you know, a story strand like that, whether it's a romantic relationship or something else, has developed completely organically because of how the films are, not because of what they think it should be based on the comics. Mm. I think that's terrific. I agree with everything you guys have both said. <laughs> but no part of me will ever look at that relationship and go, that is right and good. Because it is just I, not. Let's get to what uh, what is going to be our most contentious issue. Let's discuss everything about the vision. This was kind of the moment in the plot where I felt like the second act felt a little bit overstuffed. And I did feel that, you know, Whedon was definitely building towards it. Everything in the plot was building towards the next thing that was coming. And I feel that, you know, maybe paced a little better, it would it would have worked. But like the second, I think James, you said this on email, just when the second act feels like it's ready to become the third, we pause for a separate mission to go and recover the Vision's body, which Ultron has been trying to build out of vibranium and organic tissue. And eventually, Tony gets hand, his hands on it, tries to right the wrong he made, uploads Jarvis's AI to the body, but then the Avengers clash. I, I thought the whole sequence with his origin was, was brilliant. Like, the way they did all the kind of flashbacks to the accident in the lab with the the, the machine, um, and, you know, when he reappears in the cafeteria and... Oh, no, hang on, the Vision isn't Dr. Manhattan, is he? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Seb. <laughs> there is I did I did get a very Doctor Manhattan feel when he arrived for the first time. It's because he is yeah. basically Robo Jesus. It, it, is that is there something wrong with that? I just felt like it was from a different film. Like the the start of it was all about the danger of messing with technology and then suddenly it's like oh actually if you mess with technology in the right way it's great. I think it lets Tony off the hook. The whole way through the film he should be atoning for what he did and to kind of atone by doing the same thing again felt it felt problematic to me but having said that the actual scene where the characters kind of split into two factions about whether vision should be created or not um and you saw those like ruptures in the team i really liked and then i thought the 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 actual moment when thor arrives and brings the lightning down on the on the capsule that Vision's in, and you're like, "Oh shit, what's he doing? Is he destroying it? Is he is he charging it? What what is Thor doing?" It's this great visual moment, which I then think is followed up by some of the most beautiful moments of the movie, which is the introduction visually of that character. And I I kind of agree; it felt like it came in from a different movie, but almost also. This, at times, felt like the most comic buckiest movie that I've ever watched. (laughs) And it kind of felt perfect as well. They nailed it through the character design and through Bettany's performance. I thought he was... I mean, we talked about Billy Crudup feeling a little bit too cold as Dr. Manhattan in Watchmen. Paul Bettany has this detached coldness, but it it comes with a whole lot of humanity, that performance. Mm. And we don't get a huge amount of him, but he's great. He's more allowed to have the detached coldness because he is actually a robot, and he's a robot learning (laughs) to be human. He's supposed to be. I I was so torn on the vision because, like, there's so much that, yeah, so much about what they do with him is at odds with what the rest of the film should be like. And once you've brought him in, he is so easy a solution to most of the problems. But they don't use him. 
him as an easy solution to all of the problems. Well, let's face it, though, they wouldn't. I don't think they would succeed in a lot of the final fight without him. They wouldn't succeed in most of their in most of what they're trying to achieve in the final act without Nick Fury showing up. I think you could say that about most of the characters. Yeah, but I think it's just it, it, it's a da- he's a dangerous thing to place on the board when you've put an Infinity Stone in his head because it seems like he'd be, because he's just based on this otherworldly power. Did you, wait, that wait, said, did you say they put an Infinity Stone in his head? <laughs> yeah, oh, that's interesting. That's, uh, so wait, I think I, this... I remember of like a few weeks ago, <laughs> I was saying. Is that an Infinity Stone in Vision's head? And you were like, no, 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 Joe, Joe, no, silly, James. silly non-comic book reader. <laughs> that was That's all on James. <laughs> yeah, uh, I will accept um, the blame for that. All, I, all I'll say on that point is maybe I had too much knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> there is just something a little odd and, and a little oddly structured about the way that he comes into the film. That said, and this is kind of coming to the, the second part, um, I, I liked the portrayal of him. Maybe it's that I like Paul Bettany. I really liked the design. Um, I quite liked that he had this kind of wry jokiness about him. It worked for me, I think. The moment where he looks at Thor, eyes his cake and generates one for himself. <laughs> generates that's what a superhero looks like it was just it was just a character who was constantly learning and when they asked him whose Mm. side are they was he on and he went not on anyone's side but if it comes to life versus death i'm on the side of life i loved the uh well i was born yesterday line as well so it's little (laughs) things like that there there wasn't enough in the film i mean james said this ages ago but him and ultron uh, on the same screen you could have got so much out of yeah. that so much more than that couple of minutes that we got yeah like one of my favorite scenes in the film is that last one with vision confronting like the sort of dying remnant of ultron and they just they have a little exchange and then sort of vision you know blows him away basically you know i really liked the scene in the way it was framed and the way it was approached and it was like a small moment after all this like crazy destruction and it's again whedon saying out loud a lot of the themes that he was trying to explore through yeah and just putting your full stop and saying like well that's you know the threat is now over this is the end here is the full stop and it's a relatable moment between these sort of two you know uh, creations gone awry it was better when they talked to each other in cgi form. <laughs> i hated that scene so much i was like why am i watching two floating balls talking at one another <laughs> i mean there's not much yeah. in in the film that i would say i genuinely thought was like dumb on a michael bay level that was one of them and the other one was let's go to the building where all the internet is <laughs> oh yeah i'm not sure what that would have been a scene i would have cut Let's um, one of the last things probably that we're going to talk about before we we start to wrap this up. This final sequence where you know Ultron is effectively turning a city into a meteor to kind of wipe out humanity, and this fight goes on on a floating city essentially. I thought it it, it was inventive, but it still was a Marvel movie ending with a city being destroyed. But what do what do you think of that whole sequence? You know, in its entirety, I felt it was way too long you know i couldn't get invested in what was happening because it was i was becoming tired by it um Uh. i think my problem is i had a quite a big sense of i've seen this before and not just because they were trying to save a city from being destroyed by a bunch of disposable cgi foes it was because the other element was we have to keep this thing flying. And like that is, that's the second act of the Avengers movie. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I get that to an extent, but I still do think that Whedon is, I think he probably continues to grow as an action director in that the the actual choreography of 
of the action when it when it's happening is great. It, for me, it was that that fight was just a little bit too spread out. It didn't feel as much like the first sequence was the Avengers having a fight. You know, the Avengers facing off against a foe. I didn't really know mm. where the characters were in relationship to each other quite a lot of the time. And they were, they were, yeah, they were very dispersed, and it was them all having their own kind of little fights with the robots. Yeah, and just, and, and just and... as soon as one part got good, you would cut to a different part of the city. And you know, I liked the individual elements, but it didn't feel quite as coherent as you know the, the Great Battle of New York. I just, and I think as well, there's there's only so many ways that you can see them kind of punching and destroying like as james says you know kind of disposable (laughs) enemies i tell you my favorite part of that entire action sequence was when the helicarrier turns up because that was unexpected that's something i wanted to talk about in regards to the action in general and it'll give uh seb a good chance to talk about the hulkbuster sequence (laughs) i really liked i i I was kind of worried when i heard reports coming out of the early screenings of this film that like there was almost like a shot across the bows to dc and to man of steel that you know like in this Marvel movie, the characters go to lengths to actually save human lives. And I was like, I I don't want to see Marvel just pay lip service to this idea because, like, if it's just to kind of get back at DC and go, hey, our superheroes care about humanity, which I think sometimes, as we saw with Quicksilver turning up in Days of Future Past, I think sometimes the studios do do that to each other. What I really liked, actually, upon seeing the movie, that it wasn't that at all. It wasn't the Avengers paying lip service to saving human lives. Saving human lives was at the core of the entire story that this was telling. Yeah, it was the point of what they were trying to do. Yeah, and so the Hulkbuster sequence, which we'll talk about in a minute, the, the fact that that is the thing that drives... Bruce Banner so wild is that uh, it upsets him so much is the danger he poses to people and the fact that a a character like Captain America yes his entire reason for being is saving human lives and so then when the helicarrier turns up and that final sequence becomes about yes defeating robots which is the you know the mirror of something we've seen before but all of those characters trying to make sure that every human life gets saved and every person they can saved is loaded onto that helicarrier. I thought it was I thought it was lovely and it and it was and it was what the Avengers were supposed to be. It was it was Joss Whedon saying, This is what our characters are here to do. It's not just to defeat evil because anyone can defeat a villain, but the Avengers are here to protect humanity. And Quicksilver dies for saving one child like everyone else is on the boats at that and his point. buddy and his, and hawkeye and his buddy yeah well yeah no he's, he's going there to yeah because hawkeye's trying to save a kid and he's trying to help hawkeye yeah. and and you know succeeds in helping hawkeye but that's the point it's like he doesn't die saving 500 people he essentially dies saving two people and hawkeye doesn't and, think twice about going back to save that kid yeah exactly and that's the, that that should you know that should always be a pretty core thing in pretty much any superhero pretty much any superhero worth their salt should be willing to die to save one well that's person. this is what i was going to say is when just before the helicarrier turns up they're saying like we can't possibly save everyone and cap's like well if they're dying we're dying here with them yeah there's a nice nice little moment between black widow and captain america isn't there where she goes well why do we need to get out alive but but yeah like this is the thing about how people say at the end of Man of Steel, oh, you know, what was Superman supposed to do? He could have, you know, he had no choice but to kill that guy. And it's like, these Avengers won't make the decision to sort of compromise their moral core because they are heroes. 
And because it is fiction, they're allowed to get away with that. And that's the wonderful thing about the conflicts within the team around the creation of Ultron and Vision is that all of those characters we know are inherently good. They're all trying to do the right thing, but they're doing the right thing According doing what to they think is the right values. thing in very yeah. different ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to a sequence like that where they're saving people, yes, that is the one way that you save people. You know, you try and make sure that they're, they're alive, they're all on the same page. And that's why they're interesting as a team that works and also interesting as a dysfunctional team. I think that's the reason why inherently the Avengers concept has been working on screen. And it is and it is seeded in that earlier sequence in uh, Wakanda, Seb, which I, I know you particularly want to talk about. There is a, there's a there's a point in that scene where like Tony Stark is like scanning buildings to see that they're free of people or uh, he is hanging on to a elevator cable for as long as he can to get the people for safety while he's That's fighting the because you you spend kind of the first few minutes of that sequence going well you know this is the two this is two guys smashing up a load of buildings and crashing through things and there's probably going to be a, col- a lot of collateral damage um, and then suddenly, part way through, it sort of gives you a moment where he's pay- he's taking care and paying attention to make sure that people aren't being hurt. Now, I still don't believe that that whole sequence can take place without people being hurt or possibly killed. And I think probably people are probably killed in that sequence because that's why Bruce has the guilt over turning into the Hulk. And that's you know, it's a potential plot thread. As I say, it's what I was talking about from uh, from the Ultimates is the question of. If it turns out that at some point the Hulk has killed an innocent person, which he may well have done at some point, given all the events that we've mm. seen, then you know the world is not going to be able to countenance the idea of him as an Avenger. So maybe we'll get that explored. Um, but I just the thing with the Hulk sequence. I mean, I, I liked that. I mean, it, and the bit where they rescue where the people are falling and he, and he you know does the lift shaft and stuff did feel like a deliberate rebuke to to Man of Steel in a way that I don't think what you were saying the later sequence isn't. I think that sequence kind of was. But what surprised me about that sequence was you know you'd seen in the trailers that you get a bit with a Hulkbuster armor and you know obviously Iron Man and Hulk are going to have a big fight and going into it that's the kind of thing that I wouldn't have been that excited about seeing like you know I'm, I'm not really into things like transformers so you know sort of, <laughs> although i did like pacific rim but you know big big robots battling big monsters and just punching each other and destroying buildings it's not really something i'm into but i thought that scene had a fair amount of quite inventive imagination about it like it you know it wasn't just pow 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 punch 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 you know there was there was thought into how it played out yeah. That I think made it a really entertaining sequence. I, I think apart from the opening action sequence, that was probably the most entertaining action sequence in the film. Okay, like I'm a massive Hulk fan, as you know, Seb. This was the action se- sequence I was looking forward to most because you know Iron Man <laughs> versus Hulk. There's a I won't get into the you know thematic specifics of it, but that's a fight with a lot of kind of uh, sort of history and relevance to it. But in the film, I just felt like it was too. It was the end of Incredible Hulk again which is two cgi things punching each other until one stops i didn't feel like there was any concern from tony stark for banner which if there had been that that sequence would have been so much more real the punching him in the face moment was good <laughs> yeah that was fun and the <laughs> bit where he good. spits out his tooth like that's oh yes. you've made him angry now like yeah good good little moments but as a 10 minute sequence like we're going to have to bring this conversation to a close, but I just wondered if we could maybe run through a couple of our favourite moments from the film, or if there was if there was anything we hadn't discussed that you particularly liked. Because I just like, for instance, wanted to say I loved Andy Serkis as Ulysses Claw, and I want to see that character back in a Black Panther film. 
and um, I was a big fan of. I was a really, honestly, a huge fan of him. So I was really glad that that happened. I thought Don Cheadle. Every moment he was on screen in this movie, he was an absolute hoot. Um, at the party scene at the start, which is peppered with great moments, but turning back up at the end is like, now I've got a story. He was he was wonderful. <laughs> he was absolutely wonderful. War so Machine were... should have a solo film at some point, shouldn't he? War Machine rocks. I, I really hope that um, you just reminded me of uh, you reminded me of it by saying the party scene was peppered with moments because one thing it wasn't peppered with was pepper. Um, I really hope that her not being in it was was down to Gwyneth Paltrow being unavailable rather than them choosing not to write. Her I in would imagine she has I a certain number like of films that. on her contract uh, that she signed yeah. very early on, and maybe that she would be a much more important presence in Civil War than she would be in this. I just hope so. <laughs> Whereas I didn't really care that Jane Foster wasn't in it because that's almost like a running joke in the Avengers films. Now. <laughs> Where's Jane? Um, uh, no one cares. <laughs> don't know. Don't care. Oh, oh the, and some of the, the the greatest moments in the film, uh, J, uh, which uh, James will agree, the uh, the Munia moments were <laughs> fantastic, start to finish. I was saying all the moment that Vision lifting Thor's hammer for the first time was missing was Cap Dennings stood there going Munia. <laughs> um, <laughs> That those hammer moments were wonderful and to be honest Thor's comedic moments almost everyone landed they were they were superb is it there's a bit like on isn't there where Vision says something to him about like the balance is it's very well balanced <laughs> yeah. like, yes well you get you don't want it too heavy you, you get it on the swing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, any other any other favourite moments, James? Seb? We we talked about Ultron before, but there were little Ultron lines because there were there were moments where rather than being sort of generic, kind of slick, evil, robotic villain, everything he says is carefully thought out. He would just kind of drop into little, quite awkward moments that were. I loved when he when he cut off Claw's arm. And was completely kind of oh, yeah, oh I'm really sorry I yeah. didn't realise that you were that soft you know and it's like there were a few other little bits like that where he just kind of dropped into humanity a little bit that I, I mean unfortunately I can't remember specifics but yeah yeah lots of great little yeah like I mean that. I think we've mentioned all my favourite moments like the things that I remember that we haven't talked about are all like the kind of cameos and the references and stuff that just make I'll talk in about a sense, Stan Lee James uh, well exactly like Stanley's most <laughs> clunky obvious appearance like you, I thought it was you know. one, it, in, in the context of that party scene I thought it was wonderful uh, and actually finding a way to have Stan Lee say Excelsior on, on screen was yeah, remarkable I, I had no problem with that like, I don't want to come across as joyless cameos, but I that. just <laughs> And, and I know it's it's a problem for some people, but I kind of think that, yes, an Avengers film, and particularly an Avengers film that arrives as the 11th film in what is going to be like a 20-film, three-phase structure, that this is almost... This felt like the midpoint of the entire of the entire plan that Marvel has at present. And I think it ha- I think it has some of the benefits of existing within this serialised shared universe thing and some of the drawbacks. So, like, for me... Falcon showing up and saying our oh, missing persons case was like, oh, I like that, and I'm, I'm glad Anthony Mackie's here and whatever. But for someone who hasn't, someone who hasn't seen Winter Soldier, it must mean absolutely nothing. I know someone who saw the hadn't seen the Winter Soldier and was like, who was that guy with the wings who was in the team at the end? Because I don't know who that is. You know, this film, I think, in lots of ways, works really well as the next chapter in the ongoing MCU narrative and this kind of midpoint, this kind of this 
launch pad for where a lot of new things are going to spring out of. And that is the complete opposite of what Avengers was, because Avengers mm-hmm. was the culmination of a series of films. Nothing really jumped out of Avengers afterwards, with the possible exception of like the Infinity Stones. But really, everything before Avengers fed into it, and then it, you know, everything culminated there. Despite that, you could still recommend Avengers as a good standalone film to someone who hadn't watched the others. This is the opposite of that in almost every way. I really enjoyed it because I'm a big fan of the MCU and I'm invested in the MCU. But you would not recommend that to someone who wasn't already watching it, who who hadn't picked up the threads from earlier, and who wasn't interested in the threads. I think it still works fine as its own movie. I think you just get a lot more of it when you see all the things that are feeding into it and all of the things that it's feeding out into. Let's let's talk about that final scene where Hulk has gone off in his plane in one of the most comic book moments. <laughs> I love moments that bit, like sad Hulk in a plane. <laughs> if that's not a meme, I, I'll be Turning off upset. the screen and flying away. Wonderful. So Hulk has gone off. Iron Man has kind of said, look, that's it for me. You don't need me anymore. Uh, I'm going to go and do my own thing. Hawkeye has presumably, I probably hasn't hung it up, but has gone home to his family because he's about to have a new kid. He so did promise he'd retire, didn't he? He said this was his last mission. Did he? Yeah. Did he? Well, okay, so, so then... You're left with Captain America and Black Widow and they walk into a room and we've got Falcon who has shown up in precisely one other scene in that film. But then we've also got we've got Scarlet Witch, we've got Vision and we've got War Machine. And that we are told is our new lineup of Avengers. And all the kids in the cinema are going, That's not the Avengers. (laughs) Uh, Who's that? Yeah. But anyone 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 like me is going Oh, wait, are you telling me that your current team of Avengers are Paul Bettany, Elizabeth Olsen, Anthony Mackie, (laughs) and um, Don Don Cheadle? And also, as I think you pointed this out, Seb, two black guys, two women... And two and two white guys. One and one, one, one of the white guys is actually a pink uh, android. Yeah, yeah. It's like, and that. So from that point of view, that's great, and I think it's really great that they've done that. And you know, I love these characters from their individual appearances in films. Mm-hmm. So again, it comes back to as a fan of the MCU and as someone who's invested in all of this, I'd love to see that team in a film. But from a marketing point of you view, you can <laughs> you can well, just feel the the toy makers being like, "This is what you're giving us." <laughs> to work with but my rebuttal to you is essentially that is the avengers team that will be the status quo as the avengers team at the start of captain america civil war which makes that film film a lot cheaper no that is that is a film (laughs) being sold on captain america and iron man facing off a movie that we already know spider-man is going to be cameoing in and a bunch of other stuff they're not selling that movie on Falcon and War Machine and Scarlet Witch and Vision, but they are going to be the characters that make up the team that Cap is leading in that film. And also, we know by the time we get to another Avengers film, we'll have met Doctor Strange, Benedict Cumberbatch, and um, Black Panther, and probably Captain Marvel, and we will have done another Guardians of the Galaxy film, and they might be in this section of the universe by then as well. It's not going to be the Avengers. They are not the Avengers. Essentially, they've said, these are the supporting characters for Avengers for, for Captain America Civil War, and great. Great. And that makes sense because if you because if, if, if the Avengers were in Civil War, which obviously they'll, they'll have to be for the plot to work, and it was a team made up of Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, 
Hawkeye, Hulk and Black Widow, you would be saying, why isn't this an Avengers film? But actually, the fact that it's the new Avengers, as we're obviously going to have to call them, that, that does make sense. Make, making them the supporting characters, because they, they are not the characters on whom you would sell a film in its own right. So you can focus on the fact that it's Captain America and Iron Man. Yeah, it's a little bit more canny when you think yeah, about it that but way. Yeah, my point about this is, that final scene is not the end point of the film at the start, is it? The film doesn't work logically towards, oh, everyone's quit the Avengers and here are the new guys. I think it's almost the mid-credits scene that works before the credits, you know? It's like... Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a coda. Yeah, very very quickly, I don't think we need to discuss it. Mid-credits, something we've all seen before. Yeah, same yeah. as the first okay. one. Yeah. yeah. Okay, um, well, that is the end of our Avengers Age of Ultron discussion. But guys, what comic books are you recommending me uh, to read based on Avengers Age of Ultron? Well, it's good that you talked about how much you liked Hawkeye uh, in this and how he was the MVP, because I'm going to recommend the first volume of the recent Hawkeye series. Oh, which I've, which which I've actually heard great things about, and it was I one was of the say, things that must... I wanted to read. Yeah, I, we, I think we both wanted to give you a reason to read it, and this <laughs> film turned out to be a perfect excuse for you to read it. Um, yeah, you will have heard lots about it so i don't need to go into too much detail by matt fraction and david Iyer. volume one is called my life as a weapon it collects the first five issues plus a, a special a previous special that's not really relevant it's a shame because issue six is Might the best they be one. on um, marvel unlimited they should be yeah so i would actually say if you're going to read these single issues on marvel unlimited read issues one to six okay. rather than one, one to five because issue six is amazing um it's just great it's one of marvel's big, biggest success stories of recent years so much of what they do now in terms of their aesthetic and their approach is because of the success of this book. I won't say too much about why it's good. You'll know exactly why it's good as soon as you read it. It's uh, utterly, utterly I, w- I would quickly context. point out, issue one is quite difficult because it jumps around a lot. I can handle it, James. You know, Seriously. I just read All-Star Superman. Seriously, page to page, it is not even remotely linear. Yeah, I did. I did just read All Star <laughs> Superman. Um, James, what is your uh, what is your comic book recommendation? Uh, I would like to recommend. Okay, just quickly, there is a comic called Age of Ultron that this film takes its name from. It's Which not... I know from when the film was announced, people were going Age of Ultron, but that comic's terrible. Yeah, it's not a good comic. A good story about Ultron mm. is Ultron Unlimited, which is collected in Avengers Assemble Volume 2. Uh, it's by Kurt Busiek and Jerry Ordway and George Perez. And basically, a lot of the elements in this film of Ultron, like the idea of him building new bodies to get stronger, the idea of him having lots of drones, the idea of him sort of setting up in an Eastern European country, all of that comes from Ultron Unlimited. And this is from sort of the early, late 90s, early noughties. Uh, and it is about as pure a uh, superhero comic as you can get. Can I just very quickly add as well, although Joe, you'll probably read it on Marvel Unlimited, it is the f- first volume of the Marvel's Mightiest Heroes graphic novel collection. <laughs> and because, it, because it's issue one, it means it's available for, if you can find it anywhere, it's one ninety nine instead of the usual price of nine ninety nine. <laughs> and you can also get it from mightiestcollection.com. So uh, that, as with Daredevil Man Without Fear... Uh, that is my recommended way to read this particular storyline. Shameless plug, said. Okay, let's move on now to our final section, which is the pitch. This week, I am asking, in honour of the sadly fallen Quicksilver, which MCU superhero would you kill off next? Um, uh, James, I think you've won the last couple, so I'll make I'll make you go first here. So at least at least Seb has the chance to rebuttal. Um, <laughs> Who, who would you kill off next? I would probably kill off 
Thor because the character of Thor has a tradition of dying and coming back sort of in the cycle, the Asgardian cycle of Ragnarok, which is all the gods die and then they come back in a new form. Which is the title of the next movie. Well, quite. And specifically, I would like to do a version of Thor which who has a human alter ego. Like, there are plenty of humans who have taken on the Thor identity. I, You know, I like that dynamic and it's something they haven't really done in the films. Seb, um, who would you kill off next in the MCU? Well, I know we were talking about how great he was and and how good his comics are but I'm going to have to say Hawkeye because the thing about Age of Ultron is that it, it completely mentally and emotionally prepared me for the death of Hawkeye and then didn't follow through on it so I feel like death in the Final Destination films and so the only way that I can get retribution is that having retired and having survived every difficult mission that, that life as, as a shield op and a, an Avenger has to offer him Clint Barton retires to his farm and a tree falls on him <laughs> Seb, I feel like you do this to me every week. Your answers are so entertaining, but they're almost like designed to make me not want you to win. <laughs> it's like, I've just told you how much I love that guy to the point that you have recommended me a comic based on him. And don't you, don't, but don't you want the emotional investment and trauma? No, I want to see more Hawkeye on screen. I want to see Jeremy Renner become an important character. <laughs> and um, I love, I, I, I think it might actually happen. I think Thor might die at the end of Ragnarok. And that, you know, he pro- he'll probably return, whether it's Chris Hemsworth or not. But I'm sorry, Seb. I have to give the win to James again. Yes. You're going to give the win to James, even though I'm not going to have the chance to win one for a long <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, quite a while. I'm gutted. I really thought I would get the win today. <laughs> you so can't afford you'd have got the win when you said you were going to kill a whole guy by <laughs> putting a tree on him. Um, <laughs> but that does, that does bring us to actually our... our quite important special announcement at the end of this show which is that um for at least the next three uh, for for at least the next two full episodes uh maybe the next three or four um seb is actually not going to be joining us but um it's for a very good reason because um he is about to uh he's about to bring life into this world you you're about to create your own little ultron is that right is that right seb (laughs) Yes, so we have an imminent arrival uh, in our family due pretty much any day now as of recording of this. In fact, it was touch and you know, go as to whether you'd see Avengers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah might, might, might have actually arrived between recording this and actually releasing it, but we'll <laughs> see how it goes. So, yeah, it's likely that for you know a few, uh, few weeks or maybe a few months um, recording this will be difficult, so I'll be stepping away for a few episodes, uh, but I will be back later in the year so i hope you have fun without me and cover lots of films that i don't want to yeah. watch <laughs> um and so so uh, listeners as as far as this concerns you so unfortunately we won't have seb uh james and i will still be here and while seb is gone we will be having special guest hosts each week joining me and james um to discuss the films we've got some very exciting people lined up for those episodes so there will still be three of us introducing uh, you know talking through the superhero movies every week and it was one of our long-term goals anyway to introduce guests to the show so the idea is that once Seb gets back every so often we will have guests coming in to discuss movies you know when they have special insight as well so um, not every week but you know that will be something that happens to the podcast uh, going forward but uh, Seb 
you know, best of luck in the next few weeks. Um, <laughs> and be- best of luck to my replacements on, on yeah. batting for me in the pitch segments <laughs> as well. Do, do you think you're going to have a Vision or an Ultron? <laughs> uh, probably an Ultron. <laughs> yeah, be evil. Evil genius. Yes. Yeah. I'm, bank- I'm, I'm still holding out for you to give your child an excellent comic book name. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Thor would work. Stay tuned. Thor would work fantastically. <laughs> or, you know, out of respect, maybe, Pietro. <laughs> um, especially because we do know it's a girl yeah <laughs> uh, well Thor, Thor, Thor is currently a woman's mm-hmm. name yeah so yeah well she's not Lady Thor she's Thor work either way um, uh, okay so that, that actually is fully it for this week's podcast um, but as we mentioned we will still have a podcast arriving uh, next Wednesday you'll find out what that is once we once you get to the post credit sting um, and very excitingly the thing we're discussing we will have an interview with the star of that as well but yeah if you are, if you are enjoying Cinematic Universe then please do subscribe on iTunes Stitcher Player FM or your podcast app of choice and if you've already subscribed, then please leave us a rating or review as Mason Cooper 42.0, Ed Hodgson, Brendan Conley, and Nick M. Bryan have all done for us on iTunes in the past month. You guys um, are amazing for doing it, as are all our listeners for listening to us. It is, uh, we've been overwhelmed by the uh, reaction we've had to the podcast so far. You can find the podcast, you can find us online uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, at CU underscore podcast. Or you can send us an email, as I think two people have, to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. Send us emails, anything, memes, junk mail, we'll, we'll read it all. Um, you can find episodes of the podcast on cinematicuniverse.libsyn.com, on panelbeats.co.uk, and because this is a Film Divider podcast, on filmdivider.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Goodbye. Excelsior. the city was a part of me. It was in my blood, and I would do anything to make it a better place. Cinematic Universe returns next week and featuring a Charlie Cox interview with Daredevil.